Okay, here we are. Um, okay, great. We got the A-OK, figured it out. Thank you so much, everyone, for bearing with us. <laughs> We're having technical difficulties today, but you know what? I feel like it's going to be balanced out with the great conversation that we're fixing to have. So um, welcome to another episode of Shiro. I'm so excited to announce my special guest. He goes by Dave Matt 88 both here on Colin and on Twitter. And he uses that handle because he doesn't really want to use his real name. He's a practicing attorney, but he's my friend. And we share a love of books. And I thought it would be fantastic to have him on the show today to discuss our book that we read this last time, which is called Mouse, M-A-U-S by Art Spiegelman. So Dave, are you there? Can you unmute and mute? I can't can you hear, hear me now. I can hear you now. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Cheryl and thanks for sitting through those three introductions. I was waiting for four more, but that's fine. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I really loved this book. Um, and I've, it, I should let everybody know, you know, it, we're, I guess there are going to be some spoilers here with our discussions. But really, if you haven't read this book, I would encourage you to continue listening to this podcast and call in because I think it's just going to um, sort of not be spoilers, but rather be encouraging and make you excited to want to read. I don't think it's going to really ruin anything for you. So um, keep listening. And if you haven't read Mouse, get your copy. And if you have read along with us, then we're here to do this. Also, wanted to let you know that if you want to call in and speak to us, um, we're going to take calls probably in the next half hour or so, and I have a feeling we're going to be separating this show into two different episodes. So we're going to take some calls at the end of each half hour. So if you want to call, call in, but just hang out there for a second. We'll get to you, I promise. So Dave, what did you, have you ever read a graphic novel before? Um, I think I have a long time ago. I haven't read too many of them, but this was one of the few that I've read. And what did you think? I really liked it. Um, I thought it was a fantastic story. Um, I loved the art in it. I loved the the weaving in between present day, at least present day for then, and then the 1940s. I, I just thought it was a brilliant story. Right. And again, this is a graphic novel that was done. It was published in 1980. And it's basically comic book format that follows um, Art Spiegelman's dad's experience through the Nazi Holocaust and everything he's kind of describing to his son. But what's interesting is that it's layered. It's a story within a story. So Art Spiegelman himself reveals a lot of interesting details about himself while giving us his father's story. So there's just so much to pick apart. I think the first thing we should discuss is, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about the fact that Spiegelman chose to use mice to describe Jews and cats to describe the Nazis. Um, and I think there were issues with a lot of people saying, well, you know, humans are humans and cats and mouse are not, you know, they're not even the same type of animal. It, it's sort of degrading. Did you, did you think about that at all, Dave? I read an article about it that brought that up. And quite honestly, I had never thought of that until I read the article. And I think the article talked about how there was some criticism because they were pointing out the difference between humans are all one race, but cats and dogs are an entirely different species. Right. And there's even some people that were arguing that we were by doing that art Spiegelman was playing along with what the Nazis wanted to dehumanize 
Right. And, you know, I was thinking about that, too, as I started this book. And when you turn the first page, he uses a quote by Adolf Hitler. He says, the Jews are undoubtedly a race, but they are not human. And to me, that summed up why he did what he did by choosing that quote. I think he wanted to emphasize that point that the Nazis were viewing them as a race, but not human and separate and almost making that an allegory. And I think I, I think it's an important parallel. I mean, you can go into the whole argument about, you know, cats or predators against mice and all of that, which is important. That's an important relationship. But I don't know, that quote sort of summed it up for me. Yeah, I think so, too. And there was actually another quote that I had found when I was looking into this um, that was the basis for Art Spiegelman actually thinking about mice. And it was from a German newspaper back then. And basically it said, Mickey Mouse is the most miserable idea ever revealed. <laughs> Healthy emotions tell every independent young man, which by the way, they leave out women and every honorable youth that the dirty and filthy covered vermin, the greatest bacteria carrier in the animal kingdom cannot be the ideal type of animal. Huh? Then it says, away with the Jewish brutalization of the people, down with Mickey Mouse, wear the <laughs> swastika cross. Okay, well, that's really interesting because I'm thinking into the book about where he has the conversation at the dinner table with his dad, and his dad is actually excited for the book, and he says something about how his son is going to become famous for the book, and he'll be like Walt Disney. Yes, and I Art, remember that. Yeah, and Art Spiegelman says, wait, 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 I've got to get a pen and write this down. And he's actually sketching this out and drawing it. So that's really fascinating that, you know, his dad is is making that, that, I don't know, it just makes me think that this was all in play for Spiegelman when he was thinking about these different characters and he was thinking about how he was going to use them. I, I don't think it's as simple as, as it could just easily be depicted, you know, cats, mouse, Oh, they're fighting. Oh, it's a predator. I think there's so many layers to this and there's so many layers culturally to it as well. Um, so that, that was interesting to me. And I also, the other thing I thought was interesting is the only other character he uses in it are pigs, which at first, I thought that they represented the Polish people that were interacting with the, the mice that were friendly to them, but who were not themselves Jewish. So initially, you know, the person who gives um, Spiegelman's dad, who gives his baby brother who'd been born to his mother, she's a nurse and she's a pig. She's depicted as a pig. And then um, the governess for the kids are depicted as pigs. And so at first I'm thinking, well, you know, these pigs are, are helpful characters, but not unfriendly. Why is he depicting them as pigs? And then later on in the story, it, it's the pigs that pass and the pigs that betray them. So I didn't get the feeling that the pigs were always necessarily the most helpful of the bunch, you know? Right. Um, okay. So the other thing that I thought was interesting was really early on in the book, he starts, his dad starts discussing his mother's postpartum depression with him, which I thought was really interesting because it seems to me like that, like this would have been in the what, the 19, the late 1930s. So, or the early 1930s and mid 1930s. So, you know, it didn't seem to me like that would be diagnosed so quickly, but it, it, but they were on top of it, you know, and they talked about the mother needing to go to the sanitarium. So do you remember that part? I do. Okay. So um, that sanitarium is where they display the first Nazi flag. And his father says, you know, after 
leaving the sanitarium in this rural location, I see this Nazi flag for the first time. And that made me think about the difference between, you know, metropolitan cities and rural cities and the rise of fascism and how it affects people. For instance, this is just a personal tidbit, but when I went to go pick up my kitten from the shelter I was rescuing her from, it was in Lower Virginia in the Chesapeake. And so I decided I would take this long, windy road, you know, and and really go explore Virginia, like the quaint seaside places. And all along this road, I see Let's Go Brandon signs, like on people's farms, really big, just displayed, which we all know is, you know, um, a acronym, or not acronym, but it's a way to sort of say F.U. Biden, right? So I was really shocked because I don't see this every day. And I was really shocked at how, you know, in these rural communities, it was just so displayed. And so to me, when the father, when Spiegelman's father is saying, you know, that the Nazi flag is first displayed in a rural area, that wasn't shocking to me at all, because it seems like the closed minded, you know, um, racist behaviors sort of thrive in those places. Have you experienced that? I mean, is that your take from it? Yeah, I would agree with that. One of the things I noticed, and to your point, is that they started seeing those things like the Nazi flag in rural areas, and then it kept spreading. Right. And it was it was almost like a cancer, like different things would be moving at different paces. And one of the things I remember about the book is it, there was always something happening, like they either saw a swastika or they were told that they had to, you know, close down their shop or they had to go into a public square and there were new rules. And I remember at one point, I think one of the characters was like, oh, what now? And there was always right. something where it was just progressing. And I think that was a real powerful message about fascism is, you know, it'll start off as a sign like, let's go, Brandon. And then right. the next thing you know, so, you know, you have to wear a yellow star or you have to register where you live. And then it just continues to get worse from there. Right. I think I think there's just so many different things that are happening now that we can parallel with what was happening then and the rise of it. I mean, let's talk Ukraine, for instance, and Putin's recent war to re-annex that whole area and to try to take it back and Poland getting scared, of course. And again, you know, Mouse takes place or the story about Spiegelman's father took place in Poland. That's where they lived. So I, I would think that people in Poland are very aware of um, dictators trying to take too much space too quickly and using force to do it. And it's kind of what we're experiencing now. Um, the fact that this book would be banned in in Texas and other red states that I would, I'm going to go ahead and say are predominantly rural um, is just pretty telling as to the story. I think that's exactly what you were talking about, Dave. I agree with that. And I think some of the most recent controversy about banning happened in Tennessee, which my understanding was it's a rural county near Knoxville. So okay. that go goes right to your point is that, you know, it, it wasn't being banned in New York City or L.A. It was being banned in rural Tennessee. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, there are parallels that th this is from World War Two. And we're still facing them right now. We're still facing the same power grabs, the same things just keep repeating themselves. And and I think that while this book was written in the 1970s and published in the 1980s, that would have been a time really for like Spiegelman to say to his dad, you know, come on, dad, we're not in that place anymore. I mean, what would we say to survivors of the Holocaust now and today who 
if they were here and living through this and seeing what was happening, could we really dispute that it couldn't happen again? I don't think we could as easily. No, I don't think we could. And I think one of the things to me that was very fascinating about Spiegelman's father was there's a scene near the end of the book where they pick up an African-American hitchhiker. And he immediately thinks that they're going to, you know, that person's going to steal from them. And it's just somebody who needed a ride. Right. And it was to me, that was such an important point that even after he went through all this where he was a horrible victim of racism, like he was still dealing with his own racism. It's true, because in in the telling of what his father went through, I remember thinking, wow, this is crazy. You know, his father may be embellishing on his good traits and retelling the story to his son, but he's he's going out of his way to help people that he doesn't need to be helping. Um, you know, it's not just it wasn't just Spiegelman's dad looking out for his mom and trying to make sure that they were safe. It was, you know, when he found another person he knew that he could get to another safe place, he he tried to help. And I was thinking, you know, I don't if that were happening to people now in real time, how many people would try to help others when they themselves were, you know, hiding in barns and doing other things that sort of stood out to me. So the fact that that he was that helpful in the moment and recognized the need to, to help other Jewish people. And then later on, the fact that he won't pick up the black hitchhiker. I think that's a great parallel to what you're saying. I think that's exactly right. Like there was just a lesson was lost in that whole situation. Um, the other thing I was thinking too was when uh, Art Spiegelman is talking to Spiegelman's new wife. So Art Spiegelman's mother commits suicide, we find out in this very tragic way, which we'll discuss in a second. But um, the new wife and the father have a very tenuous relationship. They just do not get along. And Spiegelman is talking to his stepmom and she and he's saying to her, I'm concerned about how I'm portraying my father. I feel like in telling this story exactly the way he's telling me, I'm depicting him as the stereotypical Jew. And he goes on to say this, you know, that he's always worried about money, that he's, you know, cheap with spending money, that he's closed off, that he's and he starts to list all of these stereotypes that he's that have become synonymous with Jewish people after the Holocaust. And he talks about how he's he's so worried about that. Did you notice that? Oh, absolutely. Um, That was one of the things that really stood out. Um, For example, there's a scene where um, Art is at his father's house. And the father's demanding that they change the storm windows right away because he doesn't want to lose any money on heat. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there was another scene where he goes into a store and I think he tries to return a box of cereal or something that has been opened. And the, the son is just, Art's <laughs> totally embarrassed. And I think he says, well, we can never go back to that store. And <laughs> he, he continually had example after example And you're right. There was a very self-aware moment where he said, I don't necessarily want to put this in here because it reinforces the stereotype. But these are real things that my dad did. Right. And and one thing that was good. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. He openly says that. But one of the things I thought was intriguing is that, um, you know, was he like that just generally or were some of that because of uh, ingrained on him with his experiences at Auschwitz? Um, You know, he was told like everything in Auschwitz, he saved if they got a food package, if they got, you know, anything at all, he would just hoard it because Because he might need it later. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And he was very smart to do that. And and he talked about how others followed his lead and trusted his guidance on when they should go and when they shouldn't and when they should hide and when they shouldn't, because he showed really good judgment on knowing he, he was just he seemed to be able to pivot really well in those times. So everybody sort of um, admired that about him. And so it was like this quality that served him so well at the worst time of his life. And then once he was free from that, it, it, it just seemed like a burden that kept everyone out. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just impressed with his ingenuity. Like what he knew that if he, if he didn't have a skill, he was going to have to do hard labor at Auschwitz. So he right. would say, Oh, I can do 10. Uh-huh. Right. No, no, no. Right. Yeah, oh, so he would say I could be a tinsmith and he really knew a little bit about it, but he wasn't an expert. And then he would pick it up and then he would become their tinsmith. There's right. there's even a scene in there where he learns how to fix a guard's shoe and the guards yelling at him and threatening him. And he said, hey, I noticed your boots torn. You want me to fix it for you? So right. he fixes the boot. And there's even a diagram in the comic that tells you like how he fixed the boot. Right. And right. And I thought that was so interesting, just how his own ingenuity really helped him survive. Well, and the other his ingenuity was fantastic. But as the other thing you should know is, you know, Art Spiegelman is having this story told to him by his father and he's he's drawing all of that. So they're in his house. He's being told the story. And his father, even after um getting out and and being safe and living in Queens, he can't slow down. I thought it was interesting that he always has to be on his exercise bike when he's telling the worst stories about what happened to them, or he has to be counting his pills meticulously and his vitamins, or he has to be counting his nails. It's always something repetitive and it's always constant. It's almost like he can't think or rest or stop. That's true. And one thing I noticed, too, is that in so many of the scenes where he's recounting things, he has to rest. He's like, I'm exhausted. Yeah. And you get the sense that even just him going through this has physically worn him out. Right. Like there's that there's a scene where he he's walking and talking with his son and the whole time he's taking his son to the safety deposit box to show him where all of his treasures are, which harkens back to, you know, basically what saved them in the Holocaust, because he kept all of their gold and all of their things that he could use for payment. So he's taking his son in the present day to go look at this, his son who doesn't understand why they're doing this. And and he thinks it's so ridiculous. And his father's telling him the stories about you know, using these things to survive. And he has to, you know, stop and take a nitroglycerin pill for something for his heart. And it's clearly taxing on him, but it's like his son never really makes that connection or we're never privy to whether or not his son makes that connection in the moment, which I think is interesting too. It's like, we see what's happening, but we never really know what either is feeling or thinking with regard to the other. Right. There's something that really stood out for me about the sanitarium, and I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the fact that the way Spiegelman's dad... Okay, so in the story, Spiegelman's dad is telling Spiegelman that his mother, um, before the occupation in Germany, had postpartum depression when her first son was born, her first son who later died. Um, I, we're not sure how he died or I can't remember how he died. It wasn't in a camp, but he didn't live. And so after this child is born, she goes through postpartum depression really badly. And her father is a very wealthy man. So he sends her to a sanitarium. And what I thought was so interesting was that 
that Spiegelman's dad goes with her. It's like a family vacation. It's almost like a resort, the way they describe the sanitarium. It's like this hotel, this really lovely area, these theaters, these places where they do this, this great stuff. And she recovers miraculously. And it's this wonderful thing. And I don't, I think I was just shocked that such places existed because when you think about mental illness, you think about how people are treated and it's usually medications and, or, you know, commitments and hospitals and that type of thing. And so I was thinking a lot about, there has to be a reason. I, don't, I just couldn't stop thinking about how the fact that the first sign of the Nazi flag shows up after they leave the sanitarium, which is, you know, this rendering of an idyllic, healing, wonderful experience. And I know a lot of people, I've, I've said this myself, are constantly saying, you know, how could you not realize something bad was going to happen? You know, how were the Nazis able to take over so much in such an extreme way and people didn't realize they needed to leave or they needed to flee and they didn't get it quickly? And Spiegelman talks about that in the book. You know, his father says, well, we didn't believe some of the things that were happening because they were too atrocious. And I'm just thinking, you know, does the sanitarium sort of represent this idyllic understanding of the way the world is and how things are? And so this Nazi flag is just sort of this little decorative thing and it's not as drastic as it turns out to be. I mean, is that how it slowly happens? I, I mean, we all know through history that the takeover was slow. It was slow. It was meticulous. That's how it worked the way it worked. But I think another important thing is... Um, Spiegelman's dad is talking about how the only thing they lost in World War One was a pillow. Do you remember that part? I do. Okay, so he's talking about how his dad loses a pillow off of this horse cart and everything, and he won't give up the the hunt for this pillow. And the way he tells the story, it's like it's jovial and funny, and it it's charming, you know. So it's like the takeaway from World War One for the Spiegelmans is eh. It was no big deal. You know, we, we lost a pillow and we laughed and laughed and then your dad got it back type of thing. And I was like, I wonder how much that played into the lack of initial fear from the Nazis coming, you know? Right. Well, I mean, what do you think about that? What do you think about tactically the concept of how how Hitler was able to move across Poland and take things over? Well, I think your point is a good one, and I think that there's a very good um, analogy here with the sanitarium because basically this is a place that you're right. It was idyllic, and, and I'm sure some of that had to do with the fact that they had money. Maybe if right. you didn't have money, you might not be in the most idyllic sanitarium. Some of them <laughs> were not that great, right. but they, they, they were in a fantastic <laughs> place because they were wealthy, and even in the same place, you know, you can't be protected by your wealth all the time. And I think they got complacent, you know, or at least they thought, hey, I'm in this great place. We went through World War One. We lost a pillow. You know, we're we're you know, things are bad, but we're wealthy. We're you know, everything's fine. We're in the sanitarium. Right. And then suddenly everything infiltrates. And I just saw that progression in the book. It would be Nazi flag and then it would be a sign on a store and then it would be, you know, that you had to do this. And then they'd have a town meeting and they'd bring everyone in and then relocate people. And there was just a slippery slope. Like it started off with something like a Nazi flag, and then it just kept going until finally he um, was taken to Auschwitz. And then even from there, when the war was ending, they took him to Dachau, which right. is near Munich. So, you know, he didn't even get to be liberated from Auschwitz. I mean, he had to go back to Dachau. 
Um, but I, I think to, to your point about Hitler, um, you know, I think from what I've read and, and not necessarily just in this book, but Hitler was really trying to get appeasement from people. And, um, you know, people thought, OK, well, if we give him what he wants, then we'll appease him. And, you know, there was not a lot of resistance with Austria and Czechoslovakia. And then finally, the invasion of Poland was when Britain and France got into the war. Right. Right. OK, so I also at this point want to let everybody who's listening know that you're more than welcome to call, call in, ask us questions, talk to us about Mouse. If you've read Mouse, if you have any thoughts on it. Um, we're taking calls right now at this point as we keep discussing the first half of our discussion on mouse. Um, oh, this is one other little tidbit I found interesting. I thought that while Spiegelman's dad was funny in a lot of ways that he wasn't intending to be funny, there were also times where he was able to make jokes. Like when he talks about how when Spiegelman was born, they had to break his arm so that his mother could give birth to him. And then his arm did this reactionary lift thing all through his childhood and that they used to call it the Heil Hitler arm. And, and I'm thinking, well, oh, that's intense. Like if you can if you can joke about something, you know, that dark with your baby after making it out of the Holocaust. I mean, bravo. It's pretty impressive. So I thought that was interesting, like the need for for jokes. I don't remember if they joked throughout the rest of it. Do you? No, I think some of the jokes were in the beginning and then it was just more of family issues. And then obviously the story in the concentration camp and in Nazi Germany. Right. Okay. So what I really want to get into is the discussion about in the first book of Mouse, um, the, the graphic novel that um, Spiegelman's father is shown that Spiegelman did years ago. That's about his mother's suicide and how how crazy intense that is. But that's going to take a while, so I'm going to leave that for part two. <laughs> and um, is there is there anything you want to talk about that you that you really took from the book at this point? Well, I will say this just since you opened the door, and we'll talk. We can talk more about the suicide later, but. One of the things that really stood out to me was that I was reading articles about why the Tennessee school board banned the book. Okay. I wanted to know what their reasons were. And one of them was it was too violent um, and that there was a suicide. And the first thought that came to my mind is one of the more violent books that I've read that has a suicide in it is the Bible. And Judas actually commits suicide and his guts spill out during the Bible but I've never heard of that. I can guarantee you that the school hasn't banned that book. Well, so and it's I, interesting, too, that their their big point is the suicide versus the overarching genocide that's being discussed right. with the whole book, you know? Right. Sorry, that just made so, me So, and Spiegelman, Spiegelman actually had a quote when this came out, and he said that the school board members were asking um, that they uh, teach the Holocaust, but in a nicer way. Oh, so basically, okay. he's he's saying, you know, you can talk about it, but don't really talk about the full effect of it and don't talk about everything. Just make it more palatable. Well, at least then they were trying to say, let's sugarcoat the Holocaust versus now right. where it's there was no Holocaust. You know, at least they right. were still willing to concede that there was a Holocaust. I guess we should be grateful for that. Right. right. That's a good point, because they were saying, look, well, you can teach it. We just don't want to have all that violence in it. That's insane. That's insane. 
Okay. Um, so what we're going to do now, if there's anybody that wants to call in and that wants to discuss the book with us, now would be the time to do it. Dave, do you have any more thoughts or anything you want to bring up before we head over to part two of this? Like anything you've been thinking about that you wanted to jump in with? Um, I would just say that so a few random thoughts. Um, one okay. of them is I was reading about how Spiegelman actually visited Auschwitz. And he went wow. there in 19. Yeah, he went there in 1979 and he did that in research. So all, all that part where he's taping his dad and all that, that really happened. And he did, you know, hundreds of hours of tapes, went to Auschwitz. He really put the work in it to try to make sure that it was accurate and get the background and, you know, make sure that, it, you know, even though it was a book where we're representing mouse, mice and cats, it was still, you know, historically accurate. Right. Well, and that kind of leads me to another discussion we've had, you know, previously, which is you're someone who has visited a lot of Holocaust museums. You haven't you gone to Auschwitz or you went to Dachau? No, I've never been to Auschwitz. I have been to Dachau. Right. So you've been to a lot of really intense places that a lot of Americans don't ever get to go to or choose to go to. And I know we've talked before about it, um, about how. You know, it's not something, for instance, I live in D.C. and I have not been to the Holocaust Museum in the Smithsonian yet. And I've chosen to do that because it's something that's so intense for me and it bothers me so much and it really affects me and like my mental health. And you you're of the position that, you know, that we need to keep, you know, seeing these things and we need to keep making sure they're always in our consciousness and I was saying to you that, well, you know, I know what happened. I fight against it every day. I'm able to make the connection without going down the rabbit hole. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's a personal choice. And, you know, I wouldn't tell anyone that they have to do something or don't have to do something. Yeah. I know that in, you know, I live in Kansas City and recently we had an Auschwitz exhibit. And that I tell you, that exhibit was sold out for six months. They extended it. There were people there. It was so crowded. So many people wanted to go there. And yet I went with one of my neighbors and she left early because it was too much for her. Right. And I think I think it's important to be aware that, you know, this is something, you know, like I want to learn about this. I want to know that it happened. But if someone else doesn't or if it's too much for them, then I totally respect that decision. I just don't think we need to be like Tennessee where we're like, Oh, we can talk about it, but we can't really, you know, talk about it the way it really happened. We have to sugarcoat it. Right. I agree. I agree with that, too. I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's also good to sort of take care of yourself when you know you you saturated yourself a little too much. It's one of the heaviest topics I've ever I've ever faced and dealt with. So but I mean, at the same time, we could say, well, people lived through it. So it's the least we can do. Um, but I oh, mean. Go ahead. I mean, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So it's important, I think, to know at least something about it. Well, and those who do know history seem to be doomed to repeat it, too, because of the jackasses that are doomed to repeat it from not knowing anything. Sorry, well, that's just me. I, I don't disagree <laughs> with that. Okay, so we're going to wrap up this as part one of our discussion on mouse. Um, so you want to hang around and keep talking about it with me, Dave? Sure, of course. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to end this episode and we'll start another one. For those of you listening, we're going to start one back up again and do the second half of this. So thanks for tuning in. And hopefully somebody's going to give us a call, people who are in the book club who are reading along with us, and we can all talk about it together. So I'll see you in part two.